Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and is starting a campaign to end all football matches after 91 minutes. Do you hear me? 91 minutes, no more. <laughs> you you must feel pretty gutted after that. Oh, that's one word for it. Uh, I, luckily, the cat was upstairs. She seemed to sense something was happening. Not that I would ever harm the cat, listeners, of course. I love my cat. I'm Kevin Day, and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. How are you, Kieran? I'm I'm very good, thank you, Kevin. Um, but I'm back in Liverpool, teaching away. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy as I can be. Good. And how was uh, the Baroness after her gin weekend? Uh, she, she came back with uh, lots of recipes for various gin cocktails, um, <laughs> and she is now looking for other places in the country that host gin tours uh, because it's, she says it's her equivalent of collecting panini cards I think she wants to have a gin tour for every city in the country that possibly has a, a gin distillery there There's a lot of panini cards out there Kieran if she's trying to keep up with that <laughs> uh, Later in the show we will hear from Tom Rawson Head of Sustainability at Football for Future, a new charity with a mission to build a more environmentally sustainable culture in English football. He's also the first Chief Sustainability Officer in English football, possibly world football, I believe, for non-league Hanwell Town. Uh, we've got some news questions before that, though, news questions, news stories. Um, but before that, some even more important news. You will remember the saga of the missing name from Sunday's Questions pod. We had a question without a name, and you and I, uh, Kieran, we were reluctant to ask this question, and the producer guy went, no, ask it. He cracked the whip. Don't worry about the name. Names are not important. They're just little people who provide us with questions, and we said, producer guy, that's not the attitude. We had a long discussion. But the, the, it's Barry Nickel. Barry Nickel is the man who sent in the question about Scunthorpe. So, Barry, if you're listening, you probably aren't now. I imagine you would have taken umbrage after what producer guy said. But Barry Nickel was that question. And now, Kieran, news stories. This... The FIFA World Cup every two years story, Kieran, which we haven't really been taken seriously, has now had another comic twist. It's it's now entered the realms of surreal. Um, <laughs> uh, Jenny Infantino, who is the head of FIFA, he has been taking a fair amount of stick from UEFA. Now, ultimately, what we are seeing at present is a power struggle between FIFA and UEFA. UEFA make money every year from the Champions League and, to a lesser extent, from the Europa League. And, of course, they make money on top of that every four years from the European Championships. FIFA lose money three years out of four, but they make a lot of money from the FIFA World Cup. So uh, Jenny's idea was to uh, encourage, I think it's fair to say, a World Cup taking place every two years. Um, UEFA are unhappy with this because the players are unhappy with this because how is it all going to be fitted in? Uh, mm. The Olympic movement is unhappy with this because you know the Olympics takes place in the, in the you know in in the intermediary two years yeah, in which the um, uh, the World Cup doesn't place yet. Can you have a World Cup and an Olympics back to back? It's going to squeeze. It's going to squeeze it out. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's a lot of uh, pushback. So uh, Infantino, apparently in one of his meetings, came up with this. And I can only presume this is the equivalent of Alan Partridge's monkey tennis 
uh, piece of you know sort of off the cuff idea of having a World Cup, but in order to give the players a bit more respite, you cannot play in it if you played in the previous finals. So right. it, it means you you can only play in the World Cup once every four years. But it, it does mean, you know, let's say that a, a major country such as England or Spain or Italy, or Germany or Brazil, or Argentina, what happens if, if they didn't qualify for one year and they ended up in what, what can be broadly described as the World Cup equivalent of the Johnson's paint trophy? And then you get locked mm. into that four-year cycle yourself. So it, it, it seems to be a completely harebrained idea um, it will allow you know, trying to be positive it will allow in theory 80 clubs or sorry 80 countries to participate in the world in the world cup uh, every four years and you know at present it's 32 and you, know, you and I grew up when it was 16 and we thought mm. that was quite exciting um, it could also mean in that some countries might strategically fail to qualify if they're not that great a team, um, and then try to qualify for the weaker World Cup taking place in two years' time. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing different idea which uh, yeah, appears to have uh, given as much thought to it as, as some of my chat-up lines in the, in the pink coconut back in the 80s. I'm surprised to hear there was any pre-thought put into them at all, Kieran. You being a man of such spontaneity, but you've you've hit the nail on the head with one of the things you said there, Kieran. You hit the nail on the head with everything you say. Of course you do. But I, I was writing on Have I Got News For You yesterday, and it, it may surprise you, Kieran, that every now and again we put down the mighty pen of satire um, and talk about other things about once every eight or nine minutes, essentially. <laughs> frankly, there's only so many green in all jokes you can write. Um, but... We we talked about this, and then we everybody who passed, we talked about this this idea, and nearly every single football fan said, "But surely you're going to get countries jockeying to get into the 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 B World Cup. You know, you're going to get countries who are trying tactically to avoid because otherwise, what you're going to have here is essentially every second year you'll have a World Cup with essentially championship countries. Yes, yeah. So yeah, and I, you're right. Countries one to forty in the FIFA rankings. Yeah. And then countries 41 to 80. Uh, you know, who's going to host it? Because is that going to attract big crowds when you've got Albania versus Puerto Rico? And, and that's not that's not criticising the people or, or the, the commitment of the fans from either countries. But um, I think you're going, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky. I, I've managed to attend uh, a few World Cups and they've been fantastic experiences and you meet you meet loads of people but the vast majority of the fans attending are from the bigger countries with bigger yeah, fan bases and you know some of the some of the smaller countries I, I'm, I think they might struggle to to sell out their allocations mm. although I'm still convinced that broadcasting wise I still think there's room for another time and without ever stopping the Andorras of this world, the Puerto Ricos of this world from taking part in the World Cup if they can. I still think if you want to, if you want another tournament every two years, have a tournament where it's those countries play. I would, I would watch it. I think people all over the world would happily watch those teams getting a chance to actually win something. Whether it makes money for FIFA is, is the big problem. But yeah, you know, from FIFA to UEFA, Kieran, and England's next UEFA match will be played behind closed doors. Arguably, some people say we're lucky to get only a one-match ban. 
how much will this cost the FA? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one match plus, you know, they're, they're, they're on the naughty step, aren't they? There's, there's another one which yeah. is sort of a suspended sentence hanging over them. Um, I, I think this is it's not, it's not good news for England. They, they would normally make somewhere in the region of four to five million pounds from a, a sold out Wembley. Now, the next home match is against Albania. At the same time, you know, we are aware that England have not yet qualified and it's an opportunity to to get that much closer to the World Cup. And England fans are pretty amazing that they will turn out in numbers to to watch mm. what you might consider to be relatively moderate opposition over whom you would normally expect a relatively straightforward victory. So um, the the FA has had a tough period of time. It's uh, you know it, it lost money. On the back of COVID, which was understandable, um, mm. you know, there's the potential job losses at FA uh, as well. Um, so this this is going to hit them in in the coffers and at, at a time when it can't afford to. And unfortunately, and people are saying, is this anything to do with the the pretty reprehensible behaviour of some of the Hungarian fans at the last uh, the match at at Wembley? It's not. This goes mm. back to the final of the European mm. Championships, where, unfortunately, some of our fans uh, decided to behave like bellends. Mm. Mm. Um, we're all aware of the phrase extraordinary general meeting, but the Premier League this week had an extraordinary emergency meeting, um, which ended up in a vote amid some animosity, Kieran. Tell us all about this, as I know the chairman of my own club, Crystal Palace, featured quite heavily in it. Yes, um, the, the the Premier League clubs. I think it's fair to say they were unhappy with what has happened with regards to the takeover of Newcastle United, and I think in particular with the the speed of events. Um, mm. There was the CAT meeting, uh, yeah, effectively the court case with regards to um, the. Some, some of Mike Ashley's issues. And mm. once the Premier League were given assurances that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and PIF, from a legal perspective, um, are separate legal bodies, and, and people, you know, and you know, we, we've we've received criticism on it that we've not gone too hard on this. But you know, unfortunately, the law is the law. Uh, mm. it, it is a rule-based system. Um, but there is uh, there is legal separation of of power and control between the two bodies. Um, that the the Newcastle deal went through with amazing speed, um, mm. and I think that that caught the the Premier League and some of the clubs on the hop. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that they are pretty hacked off. Quite a few of the clubs with the performance to date of Gary Hoffman who is the the chairman of the uh, of the Premier League um and uh you know his his future uh is is open to question uh, you know he's, he's, there, there hasn't been a vote of no confidence yet uh would appear to be the case but uh, I think he's got to win over an awful lot of clubs so and and by all accounts all of the clubs received was a you know a the equivalent of a text. Oh, by the way, Newcastle have just been taken over by PIF. Mm. 
and that that, that was yeah they got yeah, a short email no explanation no no justification as to why the deal had gone through or why the why the premier league itself had approved it so so quickly so in terms of this extraordinary meeting an extraordinary it is by all accounts what was happening it was uh, mm. uh, uh, Steve Parrish was was taking the role of Red Robbo. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so people who are under sixty years old are now scratching <laughs> their heads. Um, Google Google British Leyland um, yeah. uh, from the nineteen seventies if you really want to do that. Um, but the the ruling that has been introduced is that you cannot have uh, sponsorship with any party to which you have a pre-existing relationship. Now, this is a temporary ban on such uh, relationships. Um, Newcastle see it as a witch hunt. Um, you know, they point out that when Manchester City were acquired uh, by Sheikh Mansour, uh, that uh, you know, Etihad Airways very quickly had a sponsorship arrangement. So why mm. can't Newcastle United have arrangements? Um, so th- there's, uh, I think the Premier League clubs are fearful that uh, Newcastle United will announce a, a either a naming rights deal, which which I'm not convinced about uh, myself. You know, it, it is St James's Park, and it will always be, I think, in the hearts of of Newcastle fans, um, or some form of very lucrative sponsorship deal. Um, so, so that's uh, that's their way of sort of literally sticking a spoke in the wheel of such deals going through. Now, the reason why it's only temporary is to give the Premier League and the clubs who are unhappy a bit of breathing space into which they can perhaps change the constitution of the Premier League to try to prevent Newcastle's commercial income increasing rapidly presently it's um it's around about 28 29 million pounds now you know it's it's lower than that of my club brighton and you know no 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 disrespect to to us or or newcastle newcastle are a much bigger club than we are they've got a lot more history and heritage they've been in the premier Mm -hmm. league for the vast majority of of its existence you know and, and we're new kids on the block so I think Newcastle underperformed spectacularly from a commercial perspective under Mike Ashley. Um, there are clubs that have got eight to almost ten times as much commercial income as Newcastle, and, and they seem to resent the potential for Newcastle to, to catch up. So I, I anticipate there will be an attempt to rewrite the rules as to what you can and cannot do uh, with regards to sponsorship income. And this will give the Premier League an opportunity to get its lawyers working overtime um, over the course of the next few weeks to try to come up with something to to prevent uh, such, uh, such relationships taking place between Newcastle and potential sponsors and commercial partners in the Middle East. There are still details emerging, Kieran, about details of what happened at what was apparently a very, very bad-tempered meeting. But my understanding is it was Newcastle who who called the meeting in the first place at very short notice to present a fait accompli to the other Premier League clubs in terms of a lucrative sponsorship deal that was already lined up. Is that true? Um, That's that could be the case. We're not quite sure on that. I certainly think Newcastle have not helped themselves because by all accounts, they went into the meeting. Lee Charnley 
who is uh, effectively you know Mike Ashley's fall guy at the club uh, mm. along with Steve Bruce you know they, they are very much seen as as Ashley uh, Ashley uh, yes men um, by the fan base which isn't necessarily uh, the case uh, in, I think in the case of Steve Bruce in particular um, but uh, they, they went into the meeting and the first thing they did they they threatened the the Premier League if the Premier League tried to put mm. put to try to prevent <laughs> such deals and then they said, everybody in this room, if you vote against us, well, we think it's anti-competitive and mm. we will take on you effectively on a club-by-club -club basis as well. So yeah, they, they perhaps they went in too aggressively. Perhaps they're, the, the clubs who were angry should have said, we need to have a conversation. Um I, th I think it's I think it's a pretty poor show by the new owners that they sent Lee Charnley. You know that they if there are new owners there, why couldn't they have attended themselves and and presented their position um, rather than uh, somebody whose I think whose future is isn't necessarily going to be there for very long. Um, so neither side is coming out of this with a huge amount of credit. Newcastle, mm. perhaps, if, if even if they were thinking of taking on the, the Premier League and the other clubs legally, yeah, sometimes it's it, it's it's good if you're playing a game of poker, poker even, um, not to play your your big cards first. Um, talking is better than you know, and 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 you know, we, we've spoken to lawyers on the show. They've always said mediation, negotiation is far better mm. than uh, confrontation in a court. Well, we're playing Newcastle on Saturday, so that's going to be a spicy boardroom at oh, halftime. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm fairly certain, knowing Palace, that we will discover that Newcastle's temporary coach in charge for one game is the greatest motivator the world's ever seen. And they get their only three points. And, and to those people, by the way, there were people who accused us of um, a lack of moral outrage when we covered the Newcastle story. Those people probably haven't been listening to the pod right from the start, to be perfectly honest. And... All we pointed out was that we are very much against uh, the Saudi takeover, but there are eight or nine clubs in the Premier League who are also very much against their ownership as well, and several clubs in the Championship and many clubs in League One and League Two, and that whilst it's legal and possible for these for these people to take over clubs like Newcastle, there's not a lot we can do and except carry on campaigning for it to stop, to be perfectly honest. Um, better news for the Premier League, though, Kieran, is a huge wad of cash. A huge wad of cash is on the way. An Uncle Terry-sized wad of cash is on the way to Premier League clubs through the upcoming US TV rights auction. Yes, uh, at present, the the Premier League is in the final year of a six-year deal with uh, with NBC. Um, I think it paid around about £116 uh, million for the first three years, and then it, it was upped to £150 um, at present. Um, the, the, the Premier League is very, very popular in the US. Uh, it's second only mm. to uh, the Mexican League in, in terms of of football uh, in terms of popularity and the and the Mexican league is huge because you know clearly there is a there's a huge uh, hispanic population yeah. um in the US itself 
Uh, and I think we might be returning to Mexico a bit later as well. But what the, the Premier League has been, uh, I think, quite clever at doing is, um, A, offering the US broadcasters a long-term deal. So if you take a look at the NFL deal, you know, that's for about nine or 11 years, and it allows the, the TV companies to invest in studios, to invest in, uh, in, in infrastructure on, on that side of the water in the knowledge that it's going to be used for a long time. So, that, so it could be up to um, nine, nine years, um, and it could be worth up to $3 billion if, uh, if, if the, the Premier League manages to persuade people to, to buy rather than the full rights, but to, to split the rights so you know it could be that um you know the the UEFA matches will go to one TV company uh, the the Premier League matches will be split into a couple of packages you might be able to get Amazon involved as well because Amazon are absolutely delighted with their relationship with the Premier League domestically it's it's uh, it's been very lucrative from their point of view of signing up new people from um, Amazon Prime and, and, and Amazon Prime for you know I think for, for, for anybody who who has uh, become involved with it as on, on that subscription basis where you get your your, your free deliveries and so yeah it, it, it's 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 a bit like Hotel California uh, you you can yeah. never leave uh, because it, it's actually you know, and there are lots of there are lots of things we could also say from a moral and ethical and a workforce perspective about Amazon, but that's not really the, we're not really the right show for it, which we don't cover it in great light. It, it, it's very efficient at what it does, and I'll say no more than mm. that. So, mm. uh, you know, the, the benefits the the US broadcasters also like the fact that the people who watch football in the US they tend to be younger. They may often have more disposable income, which is attractive to um, you know, advertisers. Um, so they see the benefits, and um, the, the the football you know, it still trails way behind the NFL in terms of popularity. But it, it does now appear to have you know nipped ahead of hockey. Ice, ice hockey as a as an as a as a TV viewing sport. It's it's got to do some catching up with. Uh, baseball and and the NBA as well, uh, but it's moving forwards and it's seen now as uh, a significant number four uh, in terms of, mm. of, of broad of, yeah the benefits of having the broadcast rights. And talking of American money, Kieran, it's it's almost like guys put a modicum of effort into the running order this week. Um, I have to say, American TV companies do cover sport well, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They, they really do put the, the effort behind it. Um, an American finance and technology firm has invested in Wolves. Yes, this is a company called Peak Six. And what they've done is, is they've bought a stake in, in Fosun, who are oh. the Chinese owners of Wolves. But they do have a bit of history in football. Um, they were involved in, uh, in Irish football. They, they used to own uh, Dundalk. Um, oh. I, I think that was not a successful relationship um, from uh, one of the two tweets that, that I've seen around. And they then ended up, for some reason, buying 25% of Bournemouth and then selling it back to uh, the owner, uh, Maximum Denim, or something like that. Um, <laughs> but It's what you used to work here isn't <laughs> it, in the old days. Absolutely, yes. Um, so... Uh, it looks like they're 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 dipping their toes in. Um, certainly, talking to people 
from the US, they they do see English football as being undervalued. So that, and um, it also I think is further indication that uh, Chinese owners have lost an element of enthusiasm for for football here in Europe in terms of ownership. And, and that's come sort of directly or indirectly from from guidance from the Chinese government. And you know, there's always a close close relationship between Chinese governments uh, and and individual companies. So um, whether this is going to result in in a in a larger stake in due course, we're not sure. But the fact that it's sort of a finance and technology company um, is perhaps indicative of where football. Is, is heading it is seen as a financial product um mm. cryptocurrency and and nfts which we have spoken about um they are using football as sort of the bridgehead into into acceptance uh, so it, you know it, it could be connected with one of those things as well you actually anticipated kieran what i thought was a very clever uh nobody else would have asked this question but clearly you were straight there before me because I was going to ask whether this is anything to do with the Chinese government encouraging, shall we say, their businesses to divest themselves of their interest in European football. So clearly it is. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, Fosun, um, when they first acquired Wolves, um, spent an awful lot of money, um, and that spending has become more modest. I think it's noticeable in the last couple of years. Um, you know, they do have that very close relationship, Fosun, with uh, Jorge Mendes, the, the super agent, um, and, and he has been able to uh, utilise his connections to, to make some fantastic signings for Wolves. Um, there's no doubt about that. But whether that uh, degree of enthusiasm is now starting to wane uh, is, uh, is open to question. It's been a difficult season, year, decade, for Oldham Athletic, as we've reflected on this pod recently. And it's not getting any easier, is it, this week? No. Um, Oldham were subject to an embargo um, from the EFL. Uh, and, and this was you know, a strict application of rules. And you know, if, if we want sustainable football, then you know, the EFL are duty-bound to do this. Um, so... Oldham were uh, were under an embargo, which effectively restricted them to recruiting talent in terms of free transfers and loans only. Um, but it, it now appears that there is an additional embargo, which is going to be applied by the club, that they will be able to make no signings whatsoever. So this is the, the EFL coming down much stricter. Uh, and this is because of a failure to pay another club. Now, I don't know whether this is a loan fee. Um, I, I would be surprised if it was a transfer fee, given that um, mm. you know, Oldham have been feeding on scraps for some time. Um, but uh, you know, at a time when the club is is at the wrong end of, uh, of the football pyramid, um, I think the, the, the manager, Keith Curl, is, is operating with one hand behind his back, as, of course, are many other managers at clubs. Um, it's going to further inflame uh, what is already a fairly uh, toxic relationship between the the fan base. You know, and, you know, I, I speak to, or, or you know, I often have messages from uh, organisations such as Push the Boundary uh, at Oldham mm. who are unhappy with what's happening. Um, so you can understand 
their position uh, as fans. Uh, you know, they, they have been trying to 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 protest uh, in a variety of ways to to make sure that their, their feelings are known. The, uh, the the owner says, I put in five million quid into the club. Um, but what quite often we see, it, it's, you know, and we, we was talking about Scunthorpe uh, recently. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily the money that you put in. Uh, yeah, and this is going back to the uh, the listener Barry who, who'd sent in the question. It's 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 how you spend it as well as how much you spend, um, and and it's not been spent well. Uh, and and they have had a a fairly rotating door policy with regards to managers, which which is normally uh, a sign of things which are not good on the pitch. Mm. Don't keep mentioning Barry's name. He's had his go. Well, you, there's, there's not we've there's a, we've not a, many bad Barrys in the world, are there? You know, Barry Chuckle, yeah. uh, Barry from EastEnders. Oh, that's true. Barry, Barry Manilow. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, Barry Town. Mm. That's a football club, yeah. doesn't count. It's, I um, Barry George isn't good, but... Oh, no, they're all... Yeah. Mm. Uh, moving on. Is there a reason, Kieran, is it EFL policy that they will announce uh, that a club has breached an EFL rule, but they won't announce the detail of what rule they've breached? No, I think they, they have... Uh, that they do have a new page on the website in in their governance section, um, which uh, which is which is great. You know, it's it, it's it's improved tra- uh, uh, transparency uh, in terms of uh, what they what they do show. So now there is a list of every single club which is under embargo and also the re- reasons for it so it could be non non repayment of outstanding loans or they could have what they refer to as monitored loans uh, it could be for potential breaches of the profitability and sustainability rules uh, non payment of wages and so on so uh, you know i think this is something which is to be applauded because you know it's, it's, yeah, we we've been shouting about we want improved transparency and mm. now, um, you know, I, I think it's a step up. It, it it would perhaps be even better if 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 it was more prominent. But you know, if if you have to dig into the small print, then then so then so then so be it. I tell you, who is a Barry Barry the decorator from Porson's Arms? Oh, he's right. a lovely Barry. He's probably the nicest Barry I know. You met him. He's oh he's, yeah. Okay. AKA Frank talking and against modern football. Yes, um, he has he has many aliases, but Barry the decorator he's a, he's a lovely Barry. Yeah, my, my uncle um, Terry has many aliases as well. Of course, he had one of them. Could be Barry, maybe Barry the decorator is your uncle Terry. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's why he was so keen to meet you. Um, back to Mexico, which is a phrase I really get to use in, 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 <laughs> in any of my many years in the broadcasting industry. Back to Mexico. Um, 17 Mexican clubs have been fined after being found guilty of colluding in the women's player drafts. Yes, um, this, this is quite quite an unpleasant tale. Uh, women's football in Mexico... Is is a recent phenomenon from a, from a professional mm-hmm. point of view. The, the women's soccer league was there was formed in 2016. It then turns out that there there were all of these clubs, um, and uh, you know I, I think you know the phrase Mexico and cartel uh, are mm-hmm. quite often used in the same sentence. But it mm-hmm. looks as if these 17 clubs had formed a cartel, and the first thing that they did was that they created an informal wage cap 
Um, and uh, I did a bit of digging round, and, and this is quite horrendous. The the original wage cap was uh, between five and twenty pounds per week. Whoa, what? Yeah, this is yeah, this is this is horrendous. But you know, you, you've got young women in in Mexico. They you know, as we know, Mexico is a football crazy country. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, the clubs thought, well, this is an opportunity to make money. From from seeing the place, so and uh, now, admittedly, the the, the cartel um, increased this, and I think it it then went up to a hundred pounds per week by the time we got to twenty nineteen. But there was this uh, gentleman's agreement that um, you know they would not transfer players from one club to another. So even if you were out of contract, you you couldn't go and find yourself another club. You either had to accept a a, a pretty low salary. Or alternatively, you don't get to play football, and for an embryonic sport in terms of its professionalism, yeah, yeah. Um, it uh, you know it, it meant that these people, you know, these poor women were, were not uh, being properly rewarded. Um, th- then there was further tales came out that, uh, as far as sort of the apprentices were concerned, the, the the women players who were sixteen to seventeen years old, they were getting they weren't paid at all, and and they were effectively just giving food and lodgings. Uh, you know, these clubs are saying, if you want to play football for us, um, well, you know, we're, we're going to give you nothing. We'll, we'll feed you. That's as far as it goes. So it, it's it's pretty horrendous. So the clubs between them, um, they were fined 177 million peso, which I think is in the region of seven million pounds. So, you know, I think it is a serious fine from the from the Mexican, uh, you know, anti-competitive uh, behavior. Uh, authorities and and that has to be applauded. Um, eight individuals were also included in the fines, but they have not been named. Um, so it, you know, South American football, Central American football, fantastic. You know, of it's always a, it's great to watch it. Um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, but this story I, I think is uh, reflects very poorly on on the clubs that are running the game. Well, it certainly does, and you can't help feeling. I mean, exploitation is a word that comes to mind because women's football is no different to men's football in countries like Mexico, where so many of the players come from poor areas, areas of of terrible poverty. So the owners of these clubs will be thinking to themselves, you know, to these women, ten, twenty pound is actually quite a lot of money. We don't have to offer them any more. So there's there is that element there. It's it's a story we should keep in eye. It's not as you say. It's not a savoury story by any means. We've got two more stories to go, Kieran, before our interview. This one, I, I know it's probably a serious story, Kieran, but I'm I'm going to struggle to say it without laughing because I laughed when I read the email from, yes. from Kieran from Guy rather. Um, <laughs> it's just an image that made me laugh. The catering staff at the Camp Nou can't use the ovens because it might overload the stadium's power. I, I'm sorry. I don't know why this is so funny. It's just a, it's just a proper carry-on thing. It's just like catering staff at the new camp, Camp New, whatever, can't use the ovens in case it overloads the stadium. I just, I'm, It's just the image of the floodlights going out halfway through the Champions <laughs> League semi-final. It's like, oh, someone's put the oven on. What are you doing? We'll have the food afterwards. Yes, it's a strange – I mean, this is – we talked about Barcelona's financial problems, Kieran. But this is one of the biggest clubs in the world, and they can't put the oven on. Yes, and it's indicative of um, a, a club which has been uh, spending the pounds or spending the euros, but not send, but not looking after the 
the the infrastructure, not looking after mm. the fabric of the club um, because it's got itself into such a financial pickle. And I would thoroughly recommend for anybody, take a look at, uh, at our very good friend, uh, the Swiss Ramble. He's done a fantastic summary of the state of, of Barcelona's finances, and mm. they are... Uh, they are in a, a huge mess. It, it's not stopping them from trying to expand the stadium uh, because that's that's the nature, uh, I, I think, of of these giant clubs that they they think that they are immune. But um, the, the fact that um, there were all of these problems taking place on an operational level, on a day to day basis, um, whilst the club was was making grand pronouncements left, right, and centre. Is uh, is a true reflection of the financial mismanagement that has taken place at Barcelona Football Club, um, and also, you know, in my view, the that the presidential model, which encourages people to promise to spend huge sums of money on players, but of course, nothing will be said about how the club is is organising itself as a business, uh, you know, in terms of. Just doing the things which which happens in in every mm. company. Yeah, if if if, if your canteen's not working, then then you got a problem. Mm. Um, and finally, Kieran, very sad news for fans of Preston North End and for fans of National Hunt horse racing. Yes, this is the uh, this is the passing of uh, Trevor Hemmings, who was the the owner of uh, Preston North End. He he was a uh, he was a pretty benevolent owner and. I mean, historically, as, as you know, I, I monitor every club. Trevor Hemmings mm. was putting in six, seven, eight million pounds of his own money to subsidise the club on an annual basis, and he's done that for for most of the last decade. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I I used to get. Uh, well, I didn't used to get the stick, but but he used to get stick when I used to summarise what was taking place. You know, some some of the Preston fans, and it has to be stressed, only a minority, uh, were saying, "Well, he's not putting enough money in." But mm. um, it, it it is a a now a a cause for concern. Now, yeah, you know, we we don't know what's going to happen in, in terms of the club's future. But if you are reliant upon one person to provide funding, and that one person is no longer there, um, where is the the seven or eight million pounds of subsidy that's going to be required by the summer of twenty two? Um, so mm. you know, it could be that the club will have a legacy um, from from his estate. We don't know that. It could be that family members will take over his role. But uh, as we saw, and it does appear to be a common feature of clubs in the northwest. When if we take a look at what happened with um, mm. Eddie Davis. At, mm. uh, at Bolton Wanderers, where when his health deteriorated, he'd put in 175 million pounds. He he says, you know, for the sake of my health, I I need to divest of myself of the club. Problems arose on the back of that. Um, you know, Preston actually run a reasonably tight ship, but you know they're, they're trying to compete in the championship, which you know is is our car crash uh, football division. So um, you know. One one hopes that there is going to be some continued financial support for the club, um, but until that uncertainty is dealt with, then then there is a cause for concern. Yeah, I, I think as well as a sign of respect, we will should we will leave it a couple of weeks before we look more closely at where it leaves Preston. But um, he's definitely a great loss to National Hunt Racing. He, he was the owner of three Grand National winners, and he was always tremendous value. I, I've seen him a couple of times in person. And many times on TV, when he, one of his horses ran a, won a race, he was 
uh, he was very good to cut to afterwards, let's put it that way. Um, it's interview time, Kieran. Um, many of the stories we report on are crucial, vital, life-changing, but one story really is all of those things because we can't play football if the world is hotter than a Barcelona oven uh, on occasion. Um, or our grounds are underwater. So we spoke to Tom Rawson, Head of Sustainability at Football for Future, about the beautiful game and its relationship with the beautiful planet. Tom, hello. Thank you for joining us. First of all, Tom, tell us a little bit about your own football history, who you support, etc. The only reason I ask is because we had an interview a few months ago where someone's hidden affiliation to a certain club in Sussex was revealed halfway through and it just it just threw the rest of the interview, Tom. So I don't want to take that risk. Yeah, well, I am a Burnley fan. Oh, that's all right. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, my accent doesn't give that away, but um, my dad's from Burnley. I run a London-based supporters club for Burnley. Oh, that's great. That's I, I, Your dad being from there is one of the best things. I was... I used to get quite cross with you know people who dismiss all Man United fans because you should only dismiss some of them because some of them do have links with the town, basically, and, and quite often it's for appearance. So that's uh, how many of you are in the in the London-based Burnley Supporters Club? Well, it's it's kind of covers London and the the broader southern region and some of Burnley probably as well. Okay, and you you're, you're sort of having the same sort of seasons as we are. You're playing all right, but you're not getting many points, are you? Yeah, there are some uh, some good signs. I mean, yeah, we've been in this position before, so I still have full confidence that Dyche is the man to uh, to turn it around. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? I wish this was a football pod sometimes because I'd love to talk to you about Sean Dyche because I'm amazed he didn't come to Palace. But it, it's not, Tom. We have more important things to talk about. I'm, I'm aware, Tom, that every question I ask you about such a serious subject could sound significant and possibly doom-laden, but hopefully we'll all be more optimistic by the end of this process, but right at the top of the football for future mission statement, you talk of raising awareness of the relationship between football and climate change. What is that relationship? Yes, exactly. So the, the relationship between football and climate change was it's, it's twofold. Um, on one hand, football is vulnerable to climate change. There's obviously a game that's played in, in outdoor conditions where extreme weather events, whether that be flooding or whether that, be heating can um, affect potentially the welfare of players and fans and the the logistics of the game, um, the safety of the, the conditions. So on one hand, it's vulnerable, but on the other hand, um, football is a significant contributor to climate change and has a, I don't think anyone really knows how huge football's carbon footprint is, but there's no doubt that it's, it's significant, probably the size of a small country. Um, so it's both, both vulnerable and a, and a contributor. Is that just English football you're talking about there that has that giant carbon footprint? Um, well, both. I mean, yeah, f- football in England, the Premier League, um, but obviously football worldwide has a, has a huge carbon footprint, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, I, w- I want to come on to those climate extremes in a bit more detail in a moment, but um, in, in our introduction, we talked about um, football for future. Uh, is every one of your founding team an expert in climate and sustainability or do you have football fans and, and other people on the board? Yeah, I think um, you know, the, the one thing that does bring us all together is that we are, we are football fans and probably more than that all believe in football as a, as a force for good and a, and a force for social change. 
Um, but yeah, the team's made up of climate scientists and sustainability experts, but also equally important, you know, um, creatives and, and communicators. And, um, you know, we're a team that can, that can, you know, ho- hopefully get those messages in across in a way that taps into football culture and um, is, is kind of tangible to the football community. And you've got one of football's best historians involved as well, haven't you? Exactly. The the, the legend David Goldblatt has, is yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, football future chairman. Tell, um, one of our listeners, and this is partly the reason we decided we had to talk to you and talk to you quick, Tom, is one of our listeners told us of that chilling report that 23 football grounds could be underwater by the year 2050 if we carry on the way we're going. A, is that true? And B, please tell me there's a way we can stop that happening. Yeah, this was a report written by David Goldblatt himself. And yeah. Um, the, yeah, the findings of that report were that 23 out of 92, so almost a quarter of uh, English men's football league clubs um, will be susceptible to total or partial annual flooding by, by 2050. So some of the grounds involved, St. Mary's, Carrow Road, Stamford Bridge, uh, the Olympic Stadium. Uh, the Amex? Yeah. Oh, okay. So every cloud. Um I, can we stop? I mean, I, I want to come on to, to some practical things that you can tell us, but I, I think people do need hope. People want to do things, but they also want to do things thinking that there's still a chance to make this change. So we, we can. We've got time. We've still got time. I mean, it's really odd. It's, it, it, that's less time away than Gaza crying, basically. But have we got time to change wow. this, Tom? Yes, I think um, what's... Uh... Every every football fan knows how uh, how important a last minute winner is, and uh, whoa, 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 say, whoa. say we're deep into Fergie time. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up. Whoa, that's <laughs> harsh. <laughs> <laughs> it's too soon. Um, we are we are deep into Fergie time, but that doesn't mean it's game over. Right. Before I ask what clubs can do, uh, we we've been asked so since we announced that we were going to talk to you. So many fans have have contacted us to say, what can we do on a on a personal level? to help stop this because you know fans are they have such goodwill they really want to help but sometimes the problem seems so vast they think that their small effort like you know I walk to the ground but that's only because I can mm. but it doesn't occur to me that that small effort is actually going to make any difference even make a tiny dent but what can fans do yeah i think i think that's you know partly that that element of being um you know it seeming too too big of a problem is you know, firstly, partly the role that Football for Future are trying to play in making this issue tangible and making it real to everyday everyday life and and the, the experience of of the football community. Um, I think that there are two elements there, and and it's um, as you correctly raised. You know, fans can only do um, what's within you know the uh, act within the choices available to them. So um, it. You know, fans are only, fans are a part of this, and fan choices are important. But having those choices in place in, the, in um, through clubs and through football, you know, from the football industry and and, and wider in the, in society and in the economy, um, is what will give give fans um, the ability to make those good choices. Like, for example, public transport: is it possible? Is it affordable? Hmm. Well, in Germany again they're they're ahead of us because most match day tickets come 
with a local transport ticket attached as well, which you know encourages people to get public transport rather than drive, which is something you can we could really adopt here, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, something else that Brighton do do very well. Yeah, I'll pretend you didn't say that. Um, what about clubs? I mean, obviously, clubs are in a much better position to do stuff on a bigger scale than fans are. So, what are clubs doing, and are they willing to talk to you when you approach them? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and again, that's a key. That's a key part of what we what we offer is to support clubs in in starting off um, starting off this journey. A lot of you know what clubs can do is um, directly within their control so addressing their impact in terms of their carbon footprint um, the waste that they create um, and how they manage their kind of local local environment but there's also you know clubs have this wider role of um, communication you know lots of clubs are, are are making good progress kind of behind the scenes but the, mm. a lack of communication means that um, it doesn't make it tangible and it doesn't allow fans to fans to, to get on this journey so it's it's that important thing of both addressing your impact but also communicating well about um, about sustainable what sustainability is i'm really interested in what fans can practically do tom is is there a sense that it's almost too late to reach out to my generation you know we've caused this problem in the first place is it is it better to concentrate on reaching out to a younger generation who seem to me to far more clearly understand the implications than perhaps my generation does. Well, hopefully, you know, talking in the language of football makes this um, tangible and accessible to, to all football fans. The, the, the team, um, the Football Future team were outside Wembley uh, early this year uh, ahead of the England-Croatia game and, you know, engaging with fans who were, um, you know, overwhelmingly concerned about mm. climate change, supporting supporting clubs in taking action and also really positive about the idea of players speaking out and, and using their platform to, to do good. I'll come on to that in a moment. You, you acknowledge yourself, Tom, on your website that there is a lot of negativity in the climate change conversation, especially as so many media outlets, to their shame, still present this as overprivileged kids stopping you from getting to work by gluing themselves to things and it's that that's the that's the narrative we're presented with how do you how do you change that how do you how do you get an, an element of positivity around a subject as difficult as this when so many people in the media are refusing to even engage with it you know the, the shocking way that people refer to Greta Thunberg older people who should know better and it's like that's as far as the debate gets it's shut down so how do we change that yeah uh yeah I agree I think I obviously I think um well I'm a very optimistic person I uh I I, I try not to let the you know the comment section get in the way of what, what can be done and represent um you know what what public opinion might be and i think you know broadly we we are seeing um fans and um you know the football community and the football industry really keen to get on board and start this journey but um sometimes intimidated by what it means um not quite understanding the terminology or um you know don't, don't know where to start um mm. fundamentally which is um, yeah, I think I think what what can what, what something that we can really unlock. And this is a question that I will bring Kieran in on, Tom, because of course, football clubs are businesses. So how do you persuade them that money 
spent now is a wise investment for the future when the chances are that somebody else will probably own the club in 10 years time anyway it, it you know in a way that it's almost impossible to get governments to invest in the future because it won't be them that gets the credit now yeah i think i think that question what is the cost i think it's it's important to 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 reframe that maybe as to you know what's the what's the cost of not doing anything and we've spoken mm. about how vulnerable football can be to um extreme weather that, that climate change brings um, but also you know what's the opportunity um and you know organizations more widely are really picking up sustainability and the journey to net zero as an opportunity for growth uh, an opportunity for understanding where efficiencies can be made within their within their organization and you know an opportunity to change culture and, and bring bring a sense of you know a, a new kind of purpose to the core of what the organization is which you know if you think about future future investors future supporters um, sponsors and maybe even players you know we'll be looking at these things and looking at the values that, that a club represents and what a club stands for and and potentially making a decision you know it does that reflect my values mm. Kieran uh, you know do you think clubs are more likely to spend the money it's going to take if for example, the government were to incentivise them to do that. I mean, if there was a tangible reward now, do you think that's more likely to, or do you think do you, do you have to play on a, a, a club's level of responsibility? I, I think uh, clubs are taking steps forward. Yeah, we, we did have the the, the, uh, the Chelsea Spurs match, which was the first carbon neutral, uh, carbon mm. zero game. We've got uh, the, the likes of Sky committing themselves to to, to carbon efficiencies. And also, it's actually in the interests of clubs. In in a short term, you view it as an investment. Infrastructure spending, which might be associated with this, is allowable for financial fair play purposes. So, you know that that's not it's it's not going to stop them from spending money elsewhere. Um, and if you are a club owner and you are thinking in five or ten years' time, I want to be in a position to sell this club. Well, you also want a sport which is capable of being played in ninety-two grounds. So it, it's there's an element of self-interest in in committing to uh, some form of financial investment, but also uh, ethical investment in, in in these activities. And the thing is, the costs are actually far lower than many people actually realise. Uh, I think oh. there's a fear because. Um, if it costs something, then that's more than nothing. But you can still get a return on that investment um, fi- financially because you're making cost savings by investing in, uh, you know, heat pumps in, instead of uh, using gas gas heating for the for the changing rooms and some of the facilities. Um, you can get grants, um, so you know th- th- there is positivity here. Well, also, Tom, I mean, simple things like collecting rainwater for irrigation. I mean, that can't be that expensive, can it? Yeah, there's so much that um, that a club can, in- can implement. And, yeah, I think I think to uh, to think of everything, um, you know, sustainability actions as being big investments or big infrastructure projects is, is um, you know, that's only part part of what it means. Um, you know, if you think about what, what products you buy and 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 how environmentally friendly they are and, and the kind of carbon footprint behind them um just like a very very simple example of of, of challenging suppliers you know it does every does every every single um jersey every single piece of merchandise that arrives at the club shop is it individually wrapped in plastic and you know mm. then therefore does it need to be and asking those kinds of questions doesn't 
doesn't create cost. It just creates, you know, a, a more sustainable kind of culture around the club. Well, you know what? It's interesting you say that, Tom. Our, our very first home game this season, there was a fantastic display put on by the, the Homestead Fanatics. Brilliant. And the, the whole ground was covered in red and blue flags. But so many fans around us and after the game were wondering whether these plastic flags were sustainable, hmm. and it, which I, th- I thought was interesting. I think two years ago, I don't think people would even have considered that. So clearly the message is, is getting through. You mentioned players, uh, Tom, and in, in the context of extreme weather, those players that are lucky enough or unlucky enough to play at the World Cup in Qatar are going to discover probably for the first time what playing in extreme weather conditions actually means. Are, are you finding that players who are you know, clearly, for the most part, young and you'd think more aware of this situation. Are, are players more easy to get to on this subject than, than clubs, perhaps? I think they're, they're also, um, you know, also part of the solution and part of the, vo- part of the voice and part of the platform that needs to be, needs to be tapped into. Um, I mean, the, the influence of, of football players in particular, I think if you look at the, the top um, social media accounts for sports people in general, then the, the top three are Neymar, Messi and Ronaldo. You know, they're footballers. Mm. So the reach of the reach of players is really significant. Um, another one of our board members is Katie Root, who's a footballer for Southampton in New Zealand. And yeah. she's, she's used her platform throughout her career to talk about environmental um, issues. We're working with a Wickham footballer called uh, David Wheeler. Um, players like Patrick Bamford, Mo Salah, Chris Smalling have all used their platforms to speak out and... Um, and, and say something about this issue, and I think it's yeah, it's it's a trend that's increasing. I want to talk about your work with Hanwell Town in a moment, but there is a, a league club that you presumably admire a lot in Forest Green Rovers. How important is it for you to have a living example of what can be done currently out there? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, Forest Green Rovers are a great model and great exemplar, and almost create create this kind of magnet effect of being okay they're they're all the way over there but you know it at least defines you know where where the journey is um and i think gives gives clubs an equivalent pathway to to uh, a journey to to begin and forest green roads are a great example as well not not just on you know the fact that they are sustainable but they're balancing sustainability with um punching above their weight in terms of uh you know international fan base mm. um uh, in, in terms of sponsorship and in terms of, um, to, well, just, you know, league position performance. Yeah, we'll be talking to their owner in a few weeks' time. The only problem is with Forest Green, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, Tom, is that you, know, you stand back and you admire what they're doing, these brilliant practical things that they're doing, and then somebody says, well, there's no burgers, and you go, oh, crikey, that's a problem. So there is no, there are all, all sorts of almost comedy hurdles that you have to get over that you, you might some of the more traditional match day experiences might have to disappear mightn't they yeah uh, the on the april fools day this year they announced that they were introducing meat detectors <laughs> before you go into the game so yeah i think you can they can play that game as well maybe yeah at hanwell town uh, in the southern league i believe is that right yeah the isthmian south central isthmian south central okay um, Hanwell Town, I, I, I really regret having to say this, but Hanwell Town joined Arsenal in becoming only the second London club to commit to becoming a net zero carbon football club. And you are now their chief sustainability officer, the first of its kind position 
in the whole world of football. How did both of those things come about and how is it working? Yes, well, um, yeah, that, I mean, I, I reached out to, to Nigel Hunt, who's the CEO of Hamwell Town. Um, they're already doing great things. And, um, it, you know, from our conversation, it was clear that sustainability was on their mind as well as, um, you know, a great opportunity to move the club forward. So the, the, the UN Sports for Climate Action Framework, which was the first step we took, is, is, a, is a, voluntary, um, a voluntary commitment that any club can, can make that commitment to kind of get them started on that journey. And, you know, a, a handful of Premier League clubs have done so. Clubs at any level can do it. Um, Shoreham, another non-league club, have have committed. So that's uh, you know that's that's a great great thing for clubs to be part of. We took the opportunity um, while the league was kind of postponed and suspended to to take a really close look at how the club was run um, and what where the, you know what the environmental performance was like and, and where the sustainability opportunities were. Um, kind of created a created an environmental strategy which set out across carbon waste and, and, and nature what what Hamwell could do and, and hopefully kind of set up a model that other other clubs can follow and um, you know there's lots of lots of challenges at non-league level it's a club run by volunteers um, we're now back into the season um, but we're getting those foundations set up to have a have a um, now got a sustainability um, subcommittee as part of the committee structure and um, last month they installed they upgraded their floodlights to LED floodlights. That results in a you know a forty five percent reduction in carbon, which means energy, which which means cost. So another great example of what can be done. Well, how much did that cost them? Uh, the, the payback um, is around ten years, but it but there is a payback. Right. So I mean, Kieran, that's that's. It strikes me that if a club like Hanwell can do that then the clubs in the 90s or 91 the excluding forest green have got no excuse for not doing that have they they i think if they are shown the benefits then there will be uh, a greater take up i think the clubs will also you know in, in their defense they they have to satisfy certain uh, levels of luminescence uh, to have hd cameras uh, oh, okay. So, so there might be some pushback, but what we are seeing is continual progression, progression in terms of uh, energy efficiency from from alternative m- means, and th- that that can only be a positive because cl- clubs clubs are aware that they are organisations that want to be in existence on a long term basis, and, and and you can't do that if you're underwater. So. You know, it, it's it's in their interests, and, and I'm sure that they they will have done the sums. Coming out of COVID, everybody's very sensitive about costs, but if, if you if you put forward a persuasive case, then then clubs will buy into it. Tom, since you started this project, which is going to be a long term one, obviously, are you already more or less optimistic about what football can do about its future? I am very optimistic about the way that um, that that this journey within football is. Um, is really kind of starting to seem to starting to land and, you know, starting to be starting to become very real in terms of seeing, seeing action from clubs and from, you know, broadcasters and around the, around the football industry. Um, and also, you know, the response from the, the football community and fans, um, you know, it, I think it's, it's, it's something that is just beginning, but it's, uh, it's something that's really taking off and there's, there's so many really promising signs. I, I think 
Kieran and I are always mystified as to why this pod does so well. But I think part of the reason is that we try and reflect how brilliant the football community, however you define the football community, and let's 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 say fans and players and and football clubs as a loose start. But we, we always try and reflect what good things the football community do and how, in general, despite what the media have might have you think, they are a positive, forward-thinking bunch of people who, if you explain to them why there's a problem, they will respond to that problem. They'll do something about it. So what is is there one thing that individual football fans listening to this, Tom, who will want to do their bit, without a doubt, is there one thing they can do for for you, for your organisation? And is there one thing they can do? Is there one small change they can make in their match day routine that they can they can they can do and feel better about what they're doing to help the, the climate? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's um, you know what's important is that it's uh, you don't need you know environmentally perfect football fans. You know, like one out of uh, sixty thousand, you need sixty thousand imperfect. environmentally imperfect football fans so clear example is is um is obviously travel to games and um probably about 70 percent of football's carbon footprint is uh uh, due to travel so as much as that yeah it's really significant so traveling um in more sustainable ways whether that's um yeah walking walking and cycling or taking taking public transport or just um you know arranging arranging coaches or, or car share uh, arrangements, anything to avoid single occupancy cars, I think is is the is the one is the one main thing that fans can take away. Well, presumably that's a small change that, that clubs can make as well, isn't it? In terms of how they get to games, you know, but, you know I think it's one of our listeners pointed out. There's a, there's a lot of football teams fl- going on a lot of flights in domestic games. You know, there's a lot of teams flying from London to Newcastle, and perhaps they should be going by train or coach. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that kind of level of decision-making and, and where sustainability sits as a priority, um, sh- you know, should I ideally be, be up there and be significant in, in the decisions that a club makes like that. And is there anything individual fans can do for your organization? Well, what I'd say is um, any, any fans who, who want, want to want to work together and anyone who's involved with clubs, please do, please do reach out to us um, and, and follow us on Instagram at, FTBL for future or um, Google football for future and, uh, and get in contact. Well, I, I can guarantee that one response to this, Tom, and I know this from personal experience in the two years we've been doing the pod is that we will be inundated with responses from people who are already doing things yes. off their own back. Um, and we will happily share those uh, and we will happily share anything that you want us to do in future, because I don't think there's a more, important issue in football uh, than this one it, it does feel like we've hit a, a crucial period it does feel like for the first time even people like me I thought I'm the classic guardian reading liberal I've always been aware of these things without ever thinking that it's something I should be doing something about and I think there are millions of us who feel that way who now suddenly feel no actually it's time we we all step forward and did whatever it took you know it, it's fine that we all you know put the, the rubbish in separate bins but you know it's, it's time we all started to do more isn't it Tom yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's um, it's a time to be very optimistic. Well, that's a brilliant note to end. Thank you so much for talking to us, Tom. And as I say, if there's anything we can do to help publicise your campaigns in the future, we will happily do that. That's amazing. And yeah, really appreciate the opportunity to um, to, to talk to you.
I mean, it's a really interesting interview, Kieran, and it's certainly not going to be the first time we we visit this most important of all stories, let's face it. But what strikes me out of that is that, it, it, first of all, how it's interesting that smaller teams seem to be almost more willing to take on this, this subject than, than bigger teams at the moment. But yet, as you said, it's, these, these are not huge capital investments we're talking about here for clubs to spend on becoming more sustainable, are they? No, no. And you know, a, a lot of them are are simple things which perhaps we're doing on an individual basis, you know, such as using rainwater, um, such as as you, you know, a football pitch is a is, is a big piece of of land. You know, can can you start to extract heat from it uh, in order to to make yourself more efficient on a long term basis? Um, you know, could that actually you know provide the heating for either putting it back into the national grid? Or alternatively, uh, you know, being used elsewhere in the club. So, so you know, I think some clubs are looking at this on on a progressive basis. I think the the environmental, social, and governance uh, principles are becoming more important. Um, mm. And then at the same time, you're hearing things such as you know, Manchester United flying to Leicester to play a match yeah. at the weekend. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I I know what the M6 is like. Um, it's pretty horrendous. So you can understand why they wouldn't necessarily be uh, enthusiastic about using a coach. Could they have used a train? Uh, you know, I, I guess from the from the club's point of view, they they might be you know worried about getting mobbed at the station, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. so you know, it, and also Manchester to Leicester is not a good train ride. But yeah. uh, you know, aeroplanes use the, the most fuel, taking off and landing. And uh, you know, you're not you're not going to have much time you know, on a you know, what on a ten fifteen minute flight uh, to uh, to even get the peanuts around. No, and if there's thirty of them by train, they'll get a big group discount there as well. The, the Glazers would love that. Um, at the risk of sounding flippant, Kieran, it's pouring with rain as we speak. So your your lovely Sussex rainwater might be used well. It's going to take a lot of filtration before this South London rainwater's <laughs> fit for any purpose, Kieran, really. It's, it's not even doing the garden much good, to be perfect. The garden looks worse after a South London rain than it did before. Um, this, this climate uh, conversation is going to continue. Um, what I would like to do as well is I really would like to ask our fans, our listeners all over the world, what they are doing or what their clubs are doing towards sustainability. Because I think there are probably ideas out there with some great imagination that uh, people like Tom have, have yet to think of and could probably make use of. So I'd be really interested to hear wherever you are in the world. And we know there are some areas in particular that are really suffering at the moment. I'd love to hear what, what you or your club could do. Because as I said to Tom Kieran, it's it's individual action is often the most hard to take because it you, there's no discernible difference is there you kind of feel i want to do the right thing but it, it's it's not going to make a dent but we do have to try and do the right thing so anything any of our listeners can help us with i would really like to hear and also if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to always free to air pod then please go to patreon.com slash price of football guy tells me i don't have to say forward slash anymore it's just slash uh, but i'm a traditionalist here and i'm going to keep saying forward slash thank you um, actually, I'd met Slash. He's a lovely fellow, Slash. Oh well, um, yeah, I made him. A, he said I'd made him the best cup tea he ever had. That is, um, that is a showbiz anecdote. 
that's, I've got more slash anecdotes, if you like, but it's, 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 I couldn't think of anything else to say to him, so I just said, a cup of tea, Slash? <laughs> he went, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea. And he said, oh, it's really nice. I think it's probably the first cup of tea he's had that hadn't, didn't have peyote in it for some time. <laughs> probably why he liked it so much. It's coming to something new, pot stars. How many peyotes? Just two? Stirred? All right, fine. Um, and if you have a question you like answered on our show, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We are aware there is a backlog of questions, but we will try and get to your question as quickly as we can, especially if it's about a topical issue. So that's questions at priceoffootball.com. And meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, once again, uh, folks, thank you for all your support um, and thank you for your reviews. Uh, you know, we... We uh, appreciate the good ones, and, and we try to take notice of the of the not so good ones as well. If you um, if you want to uh, assist us and uh, just get some good karma, if if you can go to the Apple icon and uh, uh, and give us five stars, doesn't matter what you write. You could say you'd rather the show was presented by Prince Andrew and Sarah Millican. I'd I'd, I'd, I'd listen to that. <laughs> um, I think that'd be a fantastic combination. Uh, it could take place in a pizza hut uh, as as well. So, um, so um, other than that, um, you know, and and also, you know, I I, I, I probably you, you, I didn't really show enough respect for Trevor Emmings. You know, I, I, I should. There are more important things than money in football as well. So, uh, admonishment yeah. to myself for that. But uh, uh, best wishes to all, and we will see you soon. We will see you soon. Bye bye, everybody. The price of football. I sent for the ball. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.